Welcome to The Bean Pod, a podcast about decentralized finance and the Beanstalk protocol. I'm your host, Rex. Before we get started, we always want to remind everyone that on this podcast, we are very optimistic about decentralized finance in general and Beanstalk in particular. With that being said, three things. First, always do your own research before you invest in anything, especially what we talk about here on the show. Second, while you're doing that research, try to find as many well-developed opposing viewpoints as possible to get the best overall picture. And third, never ever invest money that you can't afford to lose or at least be without for a while. And with that, on with the show. User privacy has always been a core tenant of public blockchain technology. In the now legendary Bitcoin white paper, Satoshi Nakamoto cites the use of private keys as a way to break the flow of information about participants in a transaction while still recording that transaction in a place where everyone can see it. But how does someone maintain privacy as they make more and more transactions on a given blockchain? As a wallet's activity begins to mount, it becomes increasingly easy for the wallet's owner to be deduced or triangulated using analytics. And while Satoshi's recommendation of using different keys for each transaction may have made sense in 2008, it's become less and less practical as systems continue to scale and retail use becomes more frequent. So what other privacy options exist? Enter John Wu, who, along with being a respected crypto researcher and writer, is part of the team at Aztec, an L2 startup specifically focused on developing a better way to maintain privacy on the blockchain. John joins me today on the podcast, and as a bonus, we've got my fellow farmer and Beanstalk contributor Dumpling joining us again as well. John, great to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And back again is Dumpling, our good friend. Dumpling, welcome back. Hey, guys. Well, John, um, great to have you. Read a ton of your work. Um, really got introduced to you through some of the Twitter threads that I've read about different happenings in cryptocurrency and DeFi, um, particularly the uh, the terror situation. Really appreciated all the, the work and research that you put into that. But we're not here to talk about, you know, some specific things that are happening in DeFi um, in terms of current events. What we really want to talk about with you is Aztec. And uh, we know that's a project that you've been involved with for quite some time. And would you take a few minutes to just kind of walk us through the project? Yeah, so Aztec is a privacy-first ZK rollup on Ethereum. And that's a lot of words for listeners who aren't aware of crypto. Um, what that means is we're a private scaling solution for the Ethereum network. And if you think about what Ethereum is, which is a public state transition machine, uh, it takes an account state. So, you know, I have 10 ETH, Rex has 5 ETH. If I wanted to send him 1 ETH, we'd have to update the state of my account and the state of his account. Ethereum does that all publicly, and it's all verifiable um, by individual validators. And that's what's beautiful about the Ethereum world computer is you get this distributed compute that is eminently auditable, but you get two drawbacks at the same time. One, everything's out in the public. Everyone can see everything that's happening. Obviously, that's highly privacy exposing. I'd say completely privacy exposing. And the second is, of course, distributed compute is expensive. 
uh, by some measures, and I'm thinking about data storage, Ethereum is 100 million times more expensive than AWS. And so um, for the sake of what we're trying to build, auditability and cost um, are acceptable. But we think for blockchains to get to mass adoption, we really need affordability and privacy. And so what we do is we say, rather than every node having to uh, validate the transaction, why don't we do the computation, quote unquote, off chain, off Ethereum, on just one big machine? Now, the follow-up question might be, uh, isn't that super centralized? Well, the way we prove that we did the computation correctly is by generating something called a zero-knowledge proof. And that zero-knowledge proof uh, carries two benefits. Number one, it allows us to accept encrypted transaction data from users, and so it offers privacy. And the second is because it's being done on one computer rather than many, many computers, um, there are cost reduction benefits as well. And so that's in a nutshell what Aztec is. Yeah, so I've heard this term zero-knowledge proofs uh, before in the crypto space um, as a, a specific feature of certain blockchain applications. Walk us through how zero-knowledge proofs work, if you would. Yeah, so a zero-knowledge proof is uh, just a way to prove something without having to reveal the underlying. Um, and so the special characteristic of zero-knowledge proofs is they're very succinct relative to uh, the underlying computation they're trying to prove. Uh, maybe an everyday example would be something like if I'm trying to go into a club, for instance, and the bouncer asks me for my identification, Typically, I have to expose my birth date um, to get into the club. Um, in a ZK proof environment, I would hand over a blob of data, uh, a, a blob that contains a ZK proof. Uh, the bouncer would validate it. And then without having to see my actual birth date, it would just give him a green light that I am of the appropriate age and qualification to get in. The other kind of like analogy that pops out of this story is the club itself is kind of a proof mechanism. Once you're inside, you can kind of be sure everyone is 18. You don't actually have to go around and verify every that every single person is 18 because by virtue of them being inside, they've kind of passed this test that uh, they have the appropriate credentials to get in. And you know, we could definitely get a little bit deeper in elliptic curve cryptography, but I would say for a non-technical audience, that's like a a good start to understanding uh, the magic of ZK proofs. You get to prove something without revealing the underlying. Very interesting. It sounds like there are not only applications within um, you know, monetary transfer, but it sounds like that that there's potential for a lot of different applications for that specific type of functionality. You know, anytime that you can essentially, rather than having to give background data or some type of re revealing. Uh, identifying data instead just be able to say, yes, this thing is good. It seems like it makes a lot of functions for, far more simple and, and probably far less data intensive. Um, when you start talking about, you know, Ethereum, probably less gas intensive. Sounds like there are a lot of, lot of opportunities for other potential uses. For sure. Um, another one that you might think is cool is identity and attestation. I think one of the problems that we face in the Ethereum space is something called the Sybil problem, where 
it's hard to prove that uh, one person doesn't own 10 wallets, for instance, trying to farm an airdrop. Um, there's a way for you to have a decentralized identity protocol that um, can be attested via ZK proof. And so you can attest that you are who you say you are without having to reveal your specific identity. And if you make everyone attest that they are a unique person, then you kind of know for sure that there isn't a Sybil attack going on that one person is not creating 10 wallet addresses to farm an airdrop. Very neat. So, so how does Aztec fit in to this space? Does it, you know, facilitate the, the development and implication or implementation of zero knowledge proofs? Does, um, does it, if I'm a user, do I get some other type of, um, identifier besides my wallet for when I'm performing transactions. Walk us through that if you would. Yeah. So in our current system, as you kind of are alluding to, we don't support Ethereum addresses because, well, if we supported Ethereum addresses, then we would have kind of a similar problem of privacy, right? We would, sure. um, we would kind of know we'd be able to connect depositors to their uh, Aztec accounts. So we've actually abstracted away addresses with an alias system. And internally, um, you know, we are continuing to improve the alias system and figure out uh, whether that is the, the perfect long-term solution for privacy. But um, it is essentially an account abstraction that allows you to use um, a simple alias that gives uh, other people a pointer to where to send their funds, um, but carries kind of like no identifying transaction data itself. And so it's not like Etherscan where I can look up your alias and I can see everything you've ever done. It's really just a black hole where I can send and receive, send funds to and receive funds from, um, but it is not an Ethereum address. And is that like a hash function? That's, I mean, that's what goes through my mind when you talk about that abstraction process. Um, it really actually is represented in our system as a UTXO note. Um, it's essentially a note that is um, uh, assigned to uh, the your private key. Um, it's associated with your account. Um, so our, our entire backend system is a UTXO note architecture, and uh, we don't really have an account model. It's not like you have an account balance. You kind of just hold these various notes and the notes can be an arbitrary number of assets, uh, one of which is an account alias that can be associated with your account. I see. In fact, now that you say that, it makes me think of uh, one of the articles that I was reading before we hopped on today um, that that I believe you wrote, um, essentially equating the system or, or drawing analogy, an analogy between it and, and a cash-based system. Yeah, exactly. And so um, it's really hard to afford privacy uh, to um, an account-based model. It requires a bunch of interactivity. Uh, the UTXO system uh, has a bunch of encrypted notes uh, to which uh, owners are assigned. And so when I want to send somebody else funds, what happens essentially is that the note's owner gets scribbled out and a new owner gets attached. And so rather than an account holding a balance, it is actually the note uh, that is ascribed to an owner. And that makes the system non-interactive and uh, just fundamentally much more privacy preserving. Um, again, because if you were, if you had to update a global state of account balances, well then 
someone needs to know the total global state and you lose uh, those benefits of encryption and privacy. So talk us through implementation. How how far along is Aztec in terms of its its life cycle? Yeah, so the original version of Aztec was a simple payments protocol that we launched last year. Of course, it has a much longer history. Um, Zach, our CEO, and Ariel, our chief scientist, wrote the original Planck paper, I believe, in 2019. And that was kind of a big leap forward in ZK proving technology. But about a year ago, we launched ZK.money, which is still accessible. Um, and that essentially was private payments. So tornado cash with internal private transfers and with arbitrary assets. And at the time, we supported uh, three assets, Ether, DAI, and RenBTC. And so it was kind of tornado cash, but with additional functionality and about 25 times less gas cost because we are a ZK rollup and we batched user transactions on layer two for execution on layer one. Um, that system really comprised two zero-knowledge circuits. One was something we call the account circuit, which is what creates and verifies accounts. Um, and the second is something we call the joint split circuit. And the joint split circuit can be best explained as an equivalence check. And the equivalence is A plus B equals C plus D. And what that means is if I have a $100 note and I want to send 20 to Rex, um, I need to break that 100 note into a 20 and an 80. Uh, and then I need to send the 20 to Rex. And then um, in order to ensure there's no double spend, I need to make sure that the 20 plus 80 was 100. Otherwise, I could just create you know, two $100 notes or an arbitrary number of notes. And so the join split is really just a, valid, a validity check on you know, was a simple send transaction uh, correctly executed. So just with those two custom circuits, um, we were able to build uh, a tornado cache with, with higher functionality and lower cost. What we've been working on shipping is a product called Aztec Connect. Aztec Connect allows anyone to use Aztec Network as a virtual proxy network for Ethereum, essentially do any Ethereum service with complete privacy. And the way we do that is we have uh, a, a set of contracts on layer one you deposit funds into layer one, and then anytime you want to interact with a, another layer one protocol, for instance, if you want to swap the ETH in the rollup contract for DAI, or you want to stake on Lido, or you want to get fixed yield on Element, um, you send an instruction to the rollup contract, which then batches you up with other users and executes that layer one transaction on your behalf. Now, this requires two additional circuits. Uh, one, which is the DeFi deposit circuit. So this is the roll-up contract depositing into Uniswap, for instance. And then the DeFi withdrawal circuit, which is getting a return value. So for instance, if you're swapping ETH for DAI, um, making sure the ETH is deposited correctly and the DAI is returned correctly. And after that layer one transaction is executed, the state, the encrypted state within Aztec is then updated. So if I had an encrypted note that said I had ETH, I instruct the rollup, hey, please swap this for DAI. The actual dollars, um, the actual assets on layer one are swapped. And then my account state off chain uh, is updated such that I'm not the owner of ETH encrypted notes anymore, but instead I'm now uh, the owner of DAI encrypted notes. And so you can think of this, the, the current layer two system as a set of receipts or IOUs, but all the action and activity is still happening on layer one. And so 
Asset Connect gives everyone the benefits of privacy while also keeping all liquidity and smart contracts on layer one. And so it's uh, both a literal bridge from our private state system to the public state of Ethereum, but it's also this metaphorical bridge that's taking us from um, a world in which we uh, do everything on layer one to what Aztec is eventually building, where we will have entirely off-chain execution um, and Aztec native smart contracts. So there are a couple different things I'd like to jump off into, but first I, I really like what you just said about layer two. And I know that within Beanstalk, there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, what the approach to layer two might be. What are your thoughts on, you know, post-merge, what does, what does layer two build out look like in general? And then maybe specifically for Aztec? Yeah, I don't actually see the merge as impacting layer two in any way. Um, there are other parts of the broader ETH2 roadmap that are very relevant to us. For instance, data sharding. And there are a lot of intermediate EIPs that are attempting to reduce the cost of call data on Ethereum. The long and short of it is um, the bottleneck for scaling right now for all layer two solutions, including Aztec. Um, but also the Optimistic, our friends at you know Optimism and Arbitrum and ZK Sync and Starkware, is that there's a very high cost of storing data on chain. And so however cheap we make um, uh, the, the proofs, uh, we have to actually store the state of the off-chain system on chain so that it can be validated and updated. Um, it, it, there's That's kind of the single source of truth that everything off-chain is happening appropriately. So... Um, one of the things that we're really pushing for is exploring a couple new EIPs that have been discussed recently, confusingly called 4844 and 4488, I believe. They're very, very similarly named. But one is just a straight Ethereum call data cost reduction that reduces a single byte of call data from, I believe, 16 gas down to 3 gas. And the other is this proto-dank sharding proposal, which is this form of um, data availability sampling that should also reduce the cost of call data specifically for rollups. And so all of that is to say, um, you know, we store our data on Ethereum because we think it's the most reliable and uh, secure data store out there. Um, we could choose proprietary data storage solutions. We could choose third parties like Celestia. To date, we haven't elected to do so and we're kind of throwing our weight behind having Ethereum um, modify the cost of call data directly rather than having to uh, move to these off-chain solutions. Um, so I would say that um, all of the scaling solutions are very, very interested in making sure the cost of data on Ethereum goes down. Um, John, I have a quick question there. Um, can you get into the weeds a little bit about how that just seems like a big reduction from 16 to 3. Um, can you speak at all to to what would allow that to be reduced so so much? Yeah, so um, there are a there are a bunch of conversations about Ethereum resource pricing. Um, John Adler at Fuel Labs and Celestia talks a lot about this. If you think about how Ethereum resources are priced, the yellow paper uh, essentially assign the costs of execution, so all of these um, Ethereum functions. Um, and the cost of data by essentially running these computations on a normal computer, running these computations on a CPU and storing data on an SSD or an HDD. 
and approximating what the long-term cost of doing those things would be. And the resources were priced, you know, reasonably well. And the idea is, uh, you know, Ethereum block space uh, includes a number of different uh, functions, right? One is just execution, which you can think of as CPU time. Another is storage, which you can think of as hard drive space. Um, because we've developed a roll-up centric roadmap for Ethereum, it seems as if the execution bottleneck has been removed. So if you can do a bunch of off-chain compute and then put a very, very lightweight, succinct, zero-knowledge proof on-chain, which doesn't cost a lot to validate, well, all of a sudden the execution bottleneck has been removed and now there's a new resource bottleneck, which is data availability. So I would say that the thinking is because uh, the resources were appropriately priced before, but this new paradigm change has made it such that the resources are kind of not properly priced. That's It's up to the Ethereum community to say, should we just reprice one of these resources and make it cheaper? Because that's the thing that's now standing in our way of scalability. It's no longer execution and CPU time. Um, so in a nutshell, I think that's why uh, such dramatic cost reductions are being pursued. Now, note that this isn't the first time call data cost has been reduced. Um, other EIPs have kind of like changed the resource cost over time as well. That's one of the cool things about Ethereum is, you know, we're, we're constantly tweaking the parameters to make sure that the chain um, is pricing resources effectively and is scaling in the right direction and there's no kind of like distorted market pricing. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So before we get too far down another path, I want to go back to Aztec Connect for just a second. John, could you walk us through how, so you say that uh, Aztec Connect is essentially, you know, a, a way for users to utilize Aztec's capabilities and directly interact with layer one. So how does that work? I'm so used to a scenario where if I want to interact with you know, let's just, yeah, you know, let's say Ethereum level one, I'm connecting a wallet and, you know, that is essentially my portal into decentralized applications or, or what have you. How does Aztec fit into that relationship? Yeah, I think maybe what you're alluding to is if you um, have ever used Optimism or if you've ever used Arbitrum, then you go into your MetaMask and you do a network switch and you bridge tokens over, um, the reason why that exists is because they are currently full-fledged networks, right? They're full-fledged execution layers. Um, Aztec is not yet. We are still working on our full-fledged execution environment. And that's why Aztec Connect is this intermediate product where we rely on Ethereum for all the computation. And instead, we are serving as a proxy network. We are serving as a set of encrypted receipts for layer one interactions. Um, and so we're really just a privacy layer for the time being, and eventually we will be a completely private smart contract execution environment. Um, uh, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. That's that's helpful, and and it kind of goes back to that that question of, you know, Aztec's evolution and where it is in terms of its life cycle. And it seems like you know you're working through those processes to move towards that, you know, that independent, you know fully operational L2 environment that has layer one interaction capability and just, yeah, just trying to get a feel for, for how those pieces fit together in this interim stage. Yeah, there's, there's, 
you know, one amazing thing about Aztec Connect is there's a, a certain amount of incrementality to it where take anything that you do on layer one and, and make it private, right? I think that's in and of itself very cool and a leap forward where you get privacy by default as long as you use Aztec Connect. You know, you, you bridge the funds, you lock them into our smart contract, you get these private notes as receipts, and now you can use this VPN essentially for Ethereum and do anything that you're used to doing privately. But we also have um, startups that are building on our network. There is a startup called Medici, um, and they're a DAO infrastructure company who want to build natively on Asset Connect because you can do all kinds of abstractions away from layer one when you have this you know, private receipt VPN system. For example, um, off-chain private voting. Um, rather than having public votes, public on-chain votes, you can have these uh, votes be tallied up in a private environment and then the aggregate of the votes get posted on chain and there's all kinds of benefits to private voting I mean not to mention our traditional voting paradigm is privacy by default and the reason why voting is private by default is because of censorship and um, you know these 11th hour problems where if you can see all the votes that have been tallied then you can you know exactly how many you need to defeat a certain vote you know these dynamics have already played out in DAO context um, but you can also do things like DAO treasury management and DAO payments not every DAO wants all of their treasury management to be on chain um, visible to all and so you can store your DAO treasury in our smart contract use Aztec Connect as a VPN to pay contributors to uh, diversify if you're selling governance tokens for, for instance, uh, stable coins for budgeting purposes, um, and even kind of DAO to DAO transactions where, you know, potentially I want to do a token swap at a um, privately negotiated price. Um, you can kind of do that swap through the Aztec Connect router essentially, uh, and and not have to reveal the terms and conditions of all of your on-chain interactions. So. Uh, you know, that's the, those are some incremental DAO use cases. There's also the potential to build a private NFT mixer. Um, you know, private NFTs are this really difficult problem because by definition, NFTs are unique and traceable. But there's a world we're not too far away from. It really just requires a couple hundred lines of code where someone can buy an NFT using Aztec as a proxy. Aztec will then hold the NFT in its vault. Um, and it won't be clear at that point which user within Aztec purchased the NFT. That NFT um, can have a an encrypted receipt assigned to it. And if I, for instance, want to send an NFT to Dumpling, uh, no one will know that the NFT has exchanged hands uh, within Aztec system um, because all of those interactions are perfectly encrypted. Um, and at some later date, Dumpling can withdraw that NFT to a fresh wallet address. And again, it's not clear who purchased it, who sent it to whom, and who the ultimate owner is. And so we think that private NFTs not only are just really cool, right, for discretion, discretionary purposes, um, but can solve a lot of the security problems that are attached to NFTs. You know, there are buyers who uh, have super high value NFTs and are targets for, you know, token drops and uh, exploits and phishing attacks. Yeah, it's really interesting. What I like is that that points to the future use case of NFTs, you know, as much as, you know, I like an Azuki and a Bored Ape as much as anybody, but, you know, to think out into the future about what will we, we be using NFTs for in terms of 
digital ownership of all kinds of intellectual property and, you know, digital representation of physical items, that privacy component, I think will become not only, well, certainly more and more necessary, but also more and more appealing to users. For sure. For sure. Oh, I also really appreciated the, um, that VPN analogy that as soon as you said that it clicked for me, I thought, oh, that makes a ton of sense. You know, utilizing Aztec is something like, something like a VPN that, you know, that essentially gives you a portal through which to access, you know, a lot of different, you know, functionality or dApps or whatever, whatever you want to call. Exactly. It doesn't change the functionality of L1. It just protects your privacy. Wonderful. So, so what is what is Aztec's business case in in this process? You know, for lack of a better way to put it, so how does how does Aztec make money? Um, so right now, the way that we charge users fees is by taking their the amortized cost of fees that they have on layer one and charging them at cost, essentially what that amortized cost is. So we're quote unquote passing all of the cost savings down to users. Now there will be a universe in the future where we have a distributed and decentralized validator set. Um, we call these roll-up providers. And these are, you know, uh, entities that uh, aggregate and order private transactions for publication into a, a ZK proof that's posted onto Ethereum. Now those validators can charge users whatever they want to charge um, and accept uh, orders of a certain, uh, with a certain fee value. And validators will be incentivized to pass the vast majority of the savings on to users, given that we'll be amortizing the cost of, uh, of transactions over many, many users, right? That's what the fundamental economics of a roll-up is. But they'll also be incentivized to charge a margin on top. And so like any decentralized network, um, the revenue will accrue to folks who are actually stakeholders. Um, and in this case, it will be our roll-up providers, and there will be some natural margin. Let's say I am able to save users 99% relative to layer one, so a transaction that would have cost a dollar instead costs a penny. Well, I think a, a validator could make a very strong case that rather than charging you a penny, they'll charge you a penny and a half, and that's the margin and that's their take on providing you that initial cost savings. So um, that's, that's kind of the way that we see economic value accruing. Now, we haven't actually talked publicly and we're not ready to talk publicly yet about um, uh, how value accrues to the network, but that's one potential way that it could happen. That's very fair. And, and again, something that will you know, be attractive to users is that idea that at the end of the day, transaction by transaction, they may very well likely come out net ahead as opposed to a, 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 a system that's currently in place, but because of how Aztec performs this functionality, you've got validators that are within the system that, that are incentivized to perform that work. They end up being able to charge their premium. Users end up being able to charge or to save significantly over regular L1 interaction. Everybody ends up happy. Yeah, exactly. And what's exciting and potentially even scary about what we're trying to do is 
we're very differentiated from general compute layers like an Arbitrum or an Optimism or even some of the other ZK rollups who are focused on general EVM computation. Um, they are all competing on a purely economic proposition, which is can we get to fastest throughput and can we get to lowest cost per user or per transaction? Um, we're very, very focused on cost reduction, of course, but we are privacy first. And so it'll be interesting to see how users price privacy. And I actually hear this argument a lot, especially from Web2 detractors, like, you know, privacy oriented projects aren't really big and they're not really revenue generating. If you think about Signal or DuckDuckGo or Brave, you know, they're decently sized businesses, no doubt, but they're not as big as centralized platforms like Google and Facebook and software developers like Microsoft. Uh, and I think this kind of like misframes the problem because there is already an inbuilt expectation of privacy in Web2. For instance, um, my emails can't be read by anyone else, right? Or presumably can't be read by anyone else. I assume that Google has access to my Gmail data so that they can serve me very targeted ads. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and so actually the paradigm that we're in blockchain is one that we haven't seen in Web2, so it's very hard to price the opportunity. And that's the bet that we're making, right, is that users want at least that level of default privacy expectation that they have in Web2, which is if I send a financial transaction or if I send a message, that it won't be visible for the entire world to see. Very fair. The term that goes through my mind that I'm sure I'm not making up, I've probably read it somewhere, you probably wrote it and I read it afterwards, is privacy is a service. Yes, for sure. Um, and, and we try to be a yes and where the beauty of uh, ZK proofs, and we actually have, we use recursive proofs. We have a layer of proofs to encrypt the transaction before it leaves your machine. And so we have a layer of proofs for privacy. And then we roll up a bunch of those proofs into another outer proof uh, which then offers uh, batched cost savings. Um, you know, that's one of the benefits of ZKs, right? You get uh, both benefits and you can kind of turn them on and off as long as you've architected the system to be privacy from the ground up, which we have. Excellent. So what are some of the challenges that your team is facing at right now? The Aztec team is looking at trying to conceptualize. Um, are they Are they more around... L2 development, or are they a little bit more fundamental in terms of, you know, basic architecture, or is it just the just the development process? Walk us through some of those challenges that that you're working through now. Yeah, so I mean, there there are. I'll, I'll interject here and say Aztec is hiring for great talent, and so definitely uh, reach out to us if you're a talented cryptographer, engineer, or business person. Um, but I would say the challenges that we're facing are up and down the stack, right? We're, we're definitely pushing toward a solution that hasn't been done before. So on the lowest level, we need highly performant proof generation algorithms. Um, you need to be able to do computation locally and then create a zero-knowledge proof around it, encrypt it, and then send it away uh, extremely rapidly. And, and we are of the belief that it's not private unless it's encrypted when it leaves your machine. If you're sending plain text to a central provider who then promises to encrypt it on your behalf, um, we just don't think that's a, a, you know, that introduces a trust assumption we're not willing to underwrite. Um, so just on the very basic level, we need highly performant proofs. Um, the next challenge is we need to build an entire network, right? There needs to be 
a decentralized set of validators. It doesn't have to be as big as the Ethereum network because uh, ZK proofs are essentially unforgeable. Um, there isn't really such a thing as a 51% attack because you can't, or with extremely low probability, you can't make up a proof. You can't inject uh, a an improper state transition. But what you can run into is liveness and censorship issues. If you just have one machine doing all the network's validation, yes, the machine can't lie, but it can go down. And so we do need to decentralize the network and we do need to create these economic incentives for people to run decentralized validators. So that's another challenge that we have. And then I'd say those are the technical challenges, but one of the big commercial challenges we have is, you know, we're not going to be EVM compatible. Most people are going to support Solidity and most people are going to support the EVM. Um, and that means supporting all of Ethereum's opcodes and being able to use all of Ethereum's hash functions and uh, and we're not doing that. Why? Because the EVM is inherently not privacy compatible. And so convincing developers to take on a new language in the future um, that we're developing called Noir, and Noir is a Rust-based domain-specific language that is uh, essentially the easiest way to build zero-knowledge circuits, we think. Um, but de But developing that language and then convincing developers to leave their existing ecosystem or leave the existing way that they do things using Solidity and the EVM and learn a whole new stack, um, that's challenging. And and we can look at our friends over at Starkware for an example. You know, they have really tried to enforce the adoption of Cairo for native ZK circuit writing, you know, on their platform. Um, we're going to have to do something very similar where we have to convince developers that there's something amazing to be built with privacy and private state, and it's worth learning a completely new way of doing things. A minute ago, John, you were talking about like private voting applications, which again, to me is, is fascinating. Um, are there partnerships that, that Aztec is looking at that they see as especially um, fortuitous in the future? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're in touch with almost every single major DeFi project on Ethereum because we think that's the most obvious use cases. Uh, DeFi is a very high activity um, domain in Ethereum, and uh, we think we have some of the most obvious benefits to those protocols, which is privacy and cost savings for users. And so we are launching with Lido and Element, um, who are two DeFi protocols, but we already have um, Asset Connect integrations written for Aave and Uniswap, Compound, you know, you name it for the major DeFi primitives. Um, going forward, I, I, my personal belief is that Aztec Connect is really well suited for, you know, batch purchasing or group purchasing from stuff like PartyDAO or, uh, Juicebox. Um, and in our future architecture, I think the sky's the limit, right? I, my personal excitement comes from, uh, a new paradigm shift in gaming. So if you think about gaming on Ethereum today, other than application specific zero knowledge implementations like there isn't you can't really access private state so like you couldn't really even build a card game on ethereum because um everyone can see the cards at all times because the evm is a public state environment so i'm actually most excited for a world in which um, we can build card games we can build loot boxes we can build any type of game mechanic that requires uh something short of perfect information it's awesome. So what else 
would you like to cover? I want to turn it over to you for a minute, John. You've got the floor. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? Um, I think we covered a lot here. I, I think I think it's worth talking about the privacy puzzle or it's it's something that Web2 detractors try to kind of like catch us into, which is like, well, if you have privacy, then won't you have nefarious activity? And, you know, I think it's worth confronting that argument head on um, because if that's true for Aztec and if that's true for blockchain, then that's true for privacy everywhere. There really um, are two forms of privacy, right? True, um, unimpeachable, ironclad privacy where you you for sure cannot backdoor what someone's doing. And that's end-to-end -end encryption, that's SSL, that's, you know, I think Apple very publicly, whether they'll stand up to this over time, we'll see, but Apple very publicly um, is like, we're not going to backdoor our users. And, um, you know, there were incidents where the FBI had strongly requested that Apple build in a backdoor and Apple has always resisted that. So in those environments where there truly is unimpeachable privacy, by definition, you can't see anything. And so there is no way to police nefarious activity. Um, on the other hand, you can have kind of fake backdoor privacy, which is kind of what we have in blockchain today, right? You can withdraw funds from a centralized exchange using it as a quote unquote privacy mixer and put it in a fresh virgin address and do whatever you want with it. And your friends might not exactly know who you are, even though they can see all your transactions. Um, but the federal government certainly does. Coinbase certainly does. Like somebody somewhere knows that that address is attached to, to something KYC'd. Um, and we need to figure out, not in blockchain, but as a society, whether we really care about privacy, right? Whether we care about true privacy, whether we care that there is a form of privacy that's unimpeachable, where no one, no matter how hard, can see what's inside. And the onus is on the user to report that all of their behavior was compliant or that all of their behavior was legal. And in fact, if you think about our like tax system, our tax system kind of functions on this self-reporting, self-auditing kind of way. The IRS doesn't audit every single person's tax return. They just use audit as a tool, as a punishment tool to be like, there's a chance you might get audited. And if you lied to us, you're really going to have to pay. But otherwise, there's a trust that the individual user is acting legally and doing their taxes correctly. And that's kind of the world we want to live in, right? We want to live in the world that we've already constructed um, for taxation, for instance, where the broad assumption is everyone is acting correctly. Um, and for the people who can't furnish a proof of correct action, who don't report that they're acting incorrectly, well, then maybe those people are doing something nefarious, but we don't believe in kind of like halfway back doors. So I think it's worth noting that privacy is not a blockchain specific problem. Nefarious activity um, in private environments is not a blockchain specific problem. That is common to to any system that you design. Um, uh, we, we just happen to believe that it's a fundamental human right. And the cost of enacting privacy on blockchain is far, far less than the benefit. The benefits far outweigh the costs, right? Um, having discretion, having security, and being able to enable new blockchain paradigms, including gaming and private order book exchanges, um, all of that is worth whatever um, obfuscation uh, there happens to be. It's a really interesting point. I mean, I think back uh, right as the, um, let's say the conflict in Ukraine was starting 
and there were cryptocurrency donations that were happening. There were NFTs that were being given, and there was a lot of discussion around privacy during that time. And obviously, it's not the first time that privacy within the crypto space in general, cryptocurrency, decentralized finance has happened, but I feel like it was kind of a new recent peak about the discussion around privacy and who's donating what, where it's coming from, where it's going. And so, yeah, to be able to look at that problem at a societal level and say, is, you know, having the potential for Russian oligarchs to be able to move their their funds around without necessarily being tracked? Is that worth the ability for a typical law-abiding citizen to be able to act in a way where they don't feel like they're constantly being scrutinized? And yeah, I, I think I agree with you that, you know, society in general says that, yeah, that's, that is, that's a choice that we are willing to make because the, the benefits certainly outweigh the costs. Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing that people don't take into consideration is that it's extremely hard to use crypto for nefarious purposes because of the liquid liquidity limitations right now. And so if someone were to use crypto for nefarious purposes, by definition, they need some kind of real world money laundering operation to begin with. And not to say, you know, large criminal organizations don't have that, but they use the traditional banking sector and, uh, you know, cash extremely effectively as it stands. Blockchain is not really a marginal benefit to them. Really, the vast majority of their capability is already built into an international network of, you know, money, cash mules and, you know, false businesses and shell entities. Um, that stuff, it's not blockchain's job to police that stuff, right? It's it's uh, it's our democracy's job to police that stuff. And that's really the source of the crime. It's not it's not like it originates on blockchain. If anything, it's difficult to get it onto blockchain to begin with. It's very fair. And, you know, I think about that example of the the war in Ukraine, just to draw it out just a little bit further. The other side of that same argument are individuals that were forced out of their homes that, you know, have been displaced that, you know, have said being able to access my Bitcoin or my Ethereum anywhere in the world has, you know, given me a way to to be able to survive and a certain amount of that has to do with that privacy. So when, you know, when you're in an area that's, that's under heavy either censorship or governmental imbalance to be able to utilize a system like cryptocurrency and, and especially in a private manner is especially important. Yeah. I, I, I think it's really a, uh, an anti-authoritarian or authoritarian resistant technology and privacy is an important part of that. Absolutely. We're getting close to the end of the hour dumpling. I want to want to turn the floor to you for a moment. Is there anything else that you'd like to to ask John or talk through? Or... Sure, sure. Thanks. Thanks Rex. Um yeah, John, I had a one maybe kind of short question for you and then we had one question from a member of our community that I wanted to uh, to ask you as well. So first, um, one thing that I think that we've all been, you know, frustrated with in the past is, you know, and continually is passwords. And I wanted to ask you, do you see a future for uh, a passwordless, uh, you know, maybe using zero knowledge or I just wanted to ask you about that. 
I'm not really sure how to get around passwords because even in a public private key paradigm, you need to furnish the private key or you need to furnish the signature. And so I think the best path is if we somehow integrate with a truly secure hardware enclave. And so, you know, Apple's biometric enclave might be an example. Now, note that I'm not an expert on Apple's biometric technology, but if they're to believe the biometric enclave um, really is a black box and uh, it's impossible to penetrate. And so if we can create some kind of biometric enclave technology or adopt technologies that are already um, censorship resistant, then certainly we could make our lives a little bit easier, right, than having to memorize and store plain text passwords. Those are obviously a huge attack vector. That's not to say that that is a solved problem, right? I don't know if you recall um, early when Face ID was released, um, a bunch of Asian people were unlocking each other's phones because, you know, Apple's biometric set was like largely Western biased. And so it was kind of hilariously racist and couldn't tell Asian people apart. So there are, of course, risks to these biometric technologies. Um, but that's like one way in which um, you could you could furnish a signature from a biometric enclave. And as long as it's totally secure, you know, that's that's definitely one way we could get rid of passwords. Interesting. Um, and uh, to bring it back around to Bean, uh, our uh, one of our community members, Jams, uh, asked, would love to know how Bean can be supportive of Aztec when we're up and running and what synergies can be realized from the two platforms. Um, yeah, I think um, at minimum, I think there is a way to integrate just privacy from the ground up. We're always looking for um, partners that are a great fit um, in terms of just having raw user privacy, right? Um, so interacting with the protocol with complete privacy, uh, as long as we think that that drives any amount of user volume, I think that would be a great next step on Aztec Connect. And then I think it behooves us to explore together um, whether there are improvements to Bean's protocol that can be unlocked with privacy by default uh, in our future architecture. Like if we were to rewrite Bean's core contracts in Noir, you know, what types of possibilities that open up? One of the things that we're realizing is that a lot of the existing um, uh, paradigms within within Ethereum right now can't really apply to a privacy-first environment, or at least privacy is not additive. And I'll give you an example, like Uniswap AMM um, likely cannot be built privately because the AMM is reliant on everybody seeing the deterministic execution price, um, seeing the liquidity, and seeing the where the spot price is on the curve. Um, it, 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 it's no surprise that it was built with um, public state in mind. Um, so yeah, I, I would love to see that conversation go go further once we develop Noir um, to see whether privacy by default would be additive. Awesome. Well, this is great, John. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. And Dumpling, as always, great to have you. Thanks, Rex. Thanks, John. You can find out more about John and read his work on Twitter at J-O-N-W-U underscore you can also find out more about Aztec on Twitter at Aztec Network. Now, before I go, I want to take a moment to remind our listeners that Beanstalk's barn raise is still ongoing, and to take advantage of the highest potential return rate of 500%, you'll need to buy fertilizer tokens before the protocol restarts later on this month. 
The Bean Pod is a production of Beanstalk Farms. You can find us on Twitter, Discord, and our home on the web at bean.money. You can also find me on Twitter at RexTheBean. And as a final reminder, this podcast is not financial advice. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.